The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.deliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Welcome to another episode of The Liberating Arts. I'm Jeff Bilbro, and with me today is Ari Schulman. And we'll be discussing uh, The New Atlantis, uh, the magazine he edits, and perhaps what role uh, magazines, uh, journals of ideas might play as institutional homes for the liberal arts. Uh, a lot of the conversations that we've published so far have reflected on how universities have been challenged in recent years as they try to foster uh, a genuine liberal education. So uh, we've already had a conversation with John Baskin, editor at The Point. Um, in January, I'll be having a, a conversation with some other editors. Uh, but today we wanted to talk uh, about a really unique magazine, I think, um, the, new, the, new, the New Atlantis, that occupies um, a, tough, a tough niche between science and technology, but also the humanities. Um, so I, I thought we could open things up here by having you just sketch the path that led you to your role as editor-in-chief and maybe give us a brief elevator pitch style history of uh, the New Atlantis. Sure, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's always a, a treat to be invited to just talk about yourself and your work in an open-ended way for an hour. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll start with the, the journal. Uh, so the New Atlantis was founded in 2003. This is, this is my just working understanding of the journal. Uh, some of our founders may, may quibble with the details here, but my understanding is that there was a, a group of intellectuals uh, based in DC, intellectuals and policymakers in DC and uh, somewhat in Chicago at the University of Chicago, um, who were, were hosting these reading groups um, and sort of the the, the kind of founding texts of modern science. So it was a lot of um, Bacon and Descartes, and I imagine some, you know, some Burke and Aristotle and then other scientific figures thrown in there. And they were doing this prompted by a lot of discussions that were happening at the time. This was around 2002, 2003, about the role of science in modern political life. So there was a, a heated debate going on over um, human embryonic stem cell research. There was a debate over steroid use in sports. Uh, there was a lot of talk about the, you know, the ballooning cost of healthcare. There were these more speculative things on the horizon about human enhancement and transhumanism and so forth. So this group was getting together and, and kind of trying to do foundational readings in modern science. And what they realized as, a, as an outcome of this group was that there wasn't really a forum that existed uh, in America for engaging in that kind of reading and debate and reflection, right? So there was Scientific American, there was Wired, there were places that would do reporting uh, on emerging developments in science and technology from a kind of straight informational point of view. But if you wanted to do a kind of deeper essayistic uh, reflection and meditation on something like that, you would have to take it to, you know, the New Republic was, uh, was a forum at the time. Uh, Leon Cass famously had his 
wisdom of repugnance argument against cloning in the New Republic at the time, but there wasn't a dedicated forum for it. And so the New Atlantis was founded to be that forum. Uh, and it was founded to offer, uh, I think, a, a critical reflection on the, some of the risks and the excesses of the scientific project. So that included um, specific harms and abuses that were then on the horizon, especially related to embryonic stem cell research and human enhancements. Um, it included reflection on what was sometimes pejoratively called the dark side of medicine, uh, the, the excesses of medical technology that could turn into an abuse uh, of human dignity and human nature. Um, and then it was also trying to offer this, this sort of deeper philosophical and moral reflection on uh, the, the basic, uh, the, the essential uh, aspirations of the modern scientific project. I think of it a lot as actually focusing in a, in a, in a specific and targeted way on critiquing the intellectual foundations of the modern project itself and of the Enlightenment project, because the, the chief manifestations of the Enlightenment project and of the, the project of modernity are the scientific enterprise and technology. And so by looking specifically um, at that endeavor, you can offer this kind of deeper reflection on the, the problems that are inherent in the modern project. And I think uh, attempts to try to correct those and to guide and, and uh, salvage some of the better aspects of modernity uh, while ridding it of some of its excesses. So that's how I think of the founding of the journal. Um, I think it has organically evolved and grown over the years. It was um, understood to fill this gap, I think, between academia uh, and shorter form, more popular writing. Um, but it was, it was still especially uh, had a kind of niche uh, intellectual audience at the time. And I think a lot of people think of us as still in that mode, but we've, we've sort of grown beyond that in a lot of ways. We've had a lot of these pieces that have had much bigger success uh, out in the culture. Um, I got involved with the, the New Atlantis in 2008 as an intern. Uh, I was an undergraduate at the University of Texas at Austin, studying English and computer science. And I was very deeply interested in, I, I thought I was very deeply interested in science, which I was. I was also studying physics and fascinated by physics as this way of explaining the fundamental nature of the universe. And uh, I had a friend who was a student of Alistair McIntyre at the University of Notre Dame who interned at the New Atlantis and, and kind of told me, this is, this is what you're looking for. This is the sort of reflection uh, on science and technology that, that you're interested in. I was especially interested in how science is sort of a proxy for what used to be philosophical reflection, right? If you wanna ask a question about human nature and what kind of creatures are we and what is our status in the universe? Anything in the popular discourse that is asked about that is, is often going to be framed uh, as a scientific question. And I was fascinated and, and troubled by some of the claims that were, were made, uh, ostensibly scientific claims that were made along those lines. So I interned in 2008 and um, then returned uh, full-time as an editor a couple of years later. And I've been involved with the journal in various capacities, um, either full-time or on the side of other things I'm doing since 2008. Since I was actually on my way to grad school in 2017 when my uh, predecessor, uh, Adam Piper, left to go work at the Weekly Standard. Uh, I was going to get a master's degree in philosophy, study philosophy of mind questions. And um, I you know, couldn't pass up the opportunity to do this. Um, and so I, I now think of our, of our purpose as slightly different, but I think I've gone on long enough. I'll, I'll probably get to this later in the interview. 
Well, that's helpful. Um, and, and I think you've done a nice job of, of articulating how the new Atlantis sort of occupies, um, kind of actually tries to bridge a lot of gaps, gaps between science and the humanities, and also gaps between um, the university and academic discussions on the one hand, and then more popular culture, uh, broader conversations about how we use science and technology on the other. Right. Uh, and I think you also alluded to this, but yeah, some of your essays, I think have gotten very, I mean, I don't know the stats, but have really driven conversation. I think of, of Matthew Crawford's essay that kind of sparked his book, I think. Um, but, but several essays have been sort of touched on. I mean, some of them, I return repeatedly to Alan Jacobs' um, essay on, I think it's a list of 79 theses maybe of um, digital technologies. There's just some some essays in there that are really, I think, perennially uh, fruitful to return to. So you can't yeah, say that about a lot of journals. I think that's right. I mean, we we describe ourselves as aiming for for longevity, right? You know, a lot of publications have faced this question over the years about whether to remain as print publications. And we were launched, we were just a print publication. The website was kind of an afterthought. Um, and of course, there, there really isn't a, you know, a print only or even a print mainly publication anymore. You have to exist primarily online. So we faced this question about, should we just go purely online? That is where most of our readers are now. And we've repeatedly answered that no. And there's, there's a few interrelated reasons for that. But the biggest one simply is I think our most enduring successes are pieces that we've published that are not only still widely read years after they were originally published, but more widely read than when they were first published. So a lot of Alan Jacobs's work thinking about um, technology and technologies of reading and writing uh, and, and these kind of deeper philosophical reflections on the nature of technology. Uh, Matt Crawford's book, uh, essay, Shop Glass of Soulcraft, that got turned into a best-selling book. Uh, Katrin Kuyper's essay, Do Elephants Have Souls? The gender and sexuality report we did a few years ago. I could go. I could go on and on, but we can see in our web stats that these pieces steadily get more readers every year. They're assigned in university classrooms. We know people who are talking and thinking about them, and that's what we're trying to do. And the the print is uh, a manifestation and a sign. I think of that permanence. It can you know it can sit on your your shelf indefinitely. Yeah. Well, let me let me return to one of those tensions we talked about a minute ago. Um, that of between the sort of broader culture and academia, um, you know, most the, this project sort of has arisen from some of the crises that higher higher institutions of higher education are facing. Um, and I guess my question is, how do you think um, the new Atlantis? How do how do you understand the relationship between the new Atlantis and higher education or academia? And um, as higher ed shifts or changes perhaps in the coming decade. Do you think that your um, dependence upon or sort of relationship with academia will have to shift as well? I, I think, for instance, many of your writers uh, are professors at, at universities. I'm sure many of your readers have college degrees um, of some sort, maybe not liberal arts degrees, although maybe. Um, so I guess my, my question is, how do, you, how do you understand the relationship of that magazine to um, academic institutions? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting and a, a complicated question. Um, you know, I, I mentioned before that we are, I think we're providing uh, this kind of middle ground between what happens in academia and what happens in popular science writing. Um, so I think, 
there are, and I want to speak delicately here because I know I'm speaking <laughs> to an academic audience. Um, we don't want to be a, a journal that is just intellectuals talking to other intellectuals. Um, and that is both a matter of who we want our audience to be. And it's also a matter of the format of the writing we do. So something we really pride ourselves on is trying to capture the kind of depth of, uh, of inquiry and reflection that you can get in academic writing without the insularity and the jargon. Um, whenever we're, we're writing an essay, we'll often, or writing or editing an essay, we'll often say that we have one reader over each shoulder and one will be a particular intellectual that we're familiar with, who we, with, we think would get something out of the shoulder. And the other would be like an intelligent lay family member who is not a part of academia and has no familiarity whatsoever with the subject matter. And we want everything we publish to be able to speak to uh, and inform and engage both of those readers. Um, so in that sense, we are, we are kind of trying to provide an alternative to some of what happens in academia. Um, but in another sense, we are, we, we are significantly dependent on what happens in academia because we're trying to bring to public life a sort of deeper reflection um, that academia is uniquely meant to foster. It's not only possible in academia, but academia is supposed to foster that kind of home. Um, I, I think of us as in a way trying to provide uh, a sort of home for the, a home and a, a place of refuge for people who are uh, alienated in different ways, alienated from the dominant scientific culture, uh, alienated from popular discourse, but also alienated from the insularity of academia. And that means that we're kind of trying to um, to provide our own sort of formation and our own way of thinking. We think of there as being a distinctly new Atlantis, not only a set of philosophical ideas about how things should be, but a, a mode of inquiry and a way of thinking about things that we're kind of trying to cultivate in our own sphere. And so we're in this sort of interesting tension with academia where we're kind of trying to draw out, uh, trying to draw upon the insights that are, that are there while keeping this distinctiveness of what we are. Um, and I, I think about what's going on in academia a lot because I think we had a, a clear institutional connection with academia when we were founded. Uh, there was, you know, almost a sort of open door between us and the University of uh, Chicago's Committee for Social Thought. We have a lot of people from St. John's who have come through, uh, come through our doors and our pages. Somewhat also the same for Hillsdale and a lot of these liberal arts colleges. But I think there used to be these kind of centers of intellectuals who were carrying on the same sort of inquiry that we were that we are carrying on uh, among themselves and also having it happen in our pages. And I, to my knowledge, that doesn't exist in quite the same way anymore. We have to do a little bit more of the work of convening and getting those people talking to each other uh, in a way that I, I don't think we did quite as much at our founding. Yeah, so maybe maybe uh, the new Atlantis depends on sort of certain kinds of academic institutions that perhaps were already marginal uh, a few decades ago, but but are becoming increasingly rare or, or endangered today. In terms of um, the, the kinds of institutional homes that foster conversations that, as you say, are, are maybe not marked by jargon or specialized discourse, but are really trying to ask these human questions of uh, science or technology. Exactly, and the kind of institutional homes where I mean, there, there are sort of two, this may be skipping ahead a little bit, but we're, there, there are a couple of qualities that we really look for in our writers. One is just appreciation for the beauty of the English language and ability to craft strong prose. And 
that is sometimes hard to find in academia. It should be cultivated there, um, but I, I think that there are not nearly enough schools, even among liberal arts schools, that really make a point of cultivating and teaching that. Um, and then the other is um, a, a lack of disciplinary, a lack of hard disciplinary boundary, boundary between the liberal arts and the sciences. I don't mean a sort of what, we, what is often called interdisciplinary work now, but just understanding these as, as disciplines that ought to be continuous with each other and that are engaged in, in similar endeavors of, um, of asking fundamental questions and attempting to gain wisdom and knowledge. I mean, in short, it is, it is hard to find people who um, have, have a sophisticated technical understanding and also have uh, philosophical and, and literary chops. And I think of that as the, the kind of core of the people that we are trying to get in our pages. Um, and then the, of that is also what we're, we're kind of trying to form in our, in our readers. And it is hard to find academic homes that are a natural reservoir for that sort of thing. There, there are lots of these people who exist in academia um, and we, you know, we know them and have them writing for us, but they are often in some sense uh, dissidents a little bit from the environment in which they find themselves. Yeah. And maybe I'll get to that community question uh, in a minute, but I also want to ask about another one of these tensions that you've been uh, talking about a bit, which is that uh, the tension between the humanities or the liberal arts, which include the sciences, but sort of sciences understood as um, features of humanity as opposed to purely technical disciplines um, and STEM or, or technical pursuits. I think the uh, New Atlantis website, maybe the mission statement says something about that the journal works toward a culture in which science and technology work for, not on human beings, which is, is a helpful distinction. Um, so how do you seek to straddle that divide? Um, what I mean, clearly, I think your, your um, recent writing um, and publications on the pandemic exemplify this, right? Uh, it's, been, it's been difficult to have thoughtful human questions about epidemiology uh, in recent months. And uh, obviously, the New Atlantic has published many uh, essays trying to do just that. So I, I don't know if you want to use those, that particular example, but you know, how, how do you sort of seek to discuss technology uh, that works for human beings? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I mean, the, you know, the, the cop-out answer is read our pages because we're, we're trying to answer this question with every issue, right? But um, I guess I'll, I'll say a few things about this. Um, I think part of what we try to do is to, uh, to, to make the argument to people that the divide between the liberal arts uh, and the sciences as it's currently conceived is, is somewhat of a false one, right? So there's a way of talking about the, uh, the limits of scientific uh, inquiry and of the wisdom that comes out of science that, that kind of follows a fact value distinction, right? Science tells us what is true, science gives us empirical knowledge, uh, but it doesn't tell us what our, uh, what our values are. That's a, that's a conventional way, I think, of answering this divide a little bit, right? You need to the liberal arts supply your values, science supplies your facts. I, th I think a lot of what we're doing is kind of trying to reject and show the limitations of that answer, right? Science has its own sort of internal goods that it aims at. Science has its own way of thinking about and, and approaching and, and even organizing our understanding of the world before it ever offers any answers. It offers this way of looking at the world as a, as a reservoir of kind of material 
uh, or of, of things that can be used for our instrumental good, for making us healthier and more powerful and so forth, right? So I think the first part of what we're trying to do is to allow, allow everyone, but especially scientists to recognize that there is already a great amount of philosophical and humanistic and liberal arts kind of work that is happening within science, whether it's reflecting on these things or not. Um, I remember when I was a, an undergrad talking to a, a fellow comp sci student, uh, I think I was you know, ex expressing my interest in philosophy and the need for science to be more philosophical. And she said that, that uh, philosophy is, you know, is useless, it's a joke, it's pointless. And I said, well, don't you think that's a philosophical point of view and not a scientific one? Um, that was a, you know, a little bit of a facile exchange, but um, my experience with, um, with scientists and engineers is that they are actually very deeply curious. They, they have a, a lot of the traits that you would expect of somebody who is a philosopher who wants to be interested in, um, in the liberal arts. But if you were to point that out to them, or if you were to ask them if they were interested in liberal arts or philosophy, they would give you an answer like that, right? They would say, this is, this is useless, this is pointless, it's just kind of navel gazing. And so I, I think that the liberal arts needs to be doing a better job uh, of articulating what it, you know, what it itself is for and also what its purpose in science is, right? If you were to, to find people in the, in the liberal arts now who are trying to articulate what its purpose is, I think a lot of them would say, what would they say? It's been a little while since I've been immersed in this. Um, you know, I think they would say we're offering writing skills or something like that. I don't, I don't think that they would be able to articulate um, that, that science has a way of kind of moving on and unthinkingly towards its own ends um, and that the liberal arts are there to, to offer a better articulation for what you're going to be doing uh, one way or another and to, to understand that there is a sort of a danger in not understanding what it is that you're doing and just kind of driving down the road recklessly. Yeah, so to ask hard questions about um, the broader context or the ends or the telos of these particular techniques or methods that science might uh, give us access to, but might not always have the tools to ask, okay, should we use these tools or how should we use them or to what purposes? Um, and that, maybe that's one way of framing, you know, asking these sort of telos questions. Yeah, I mean, so this is all very abstract. I'm, I'm trying to find a way to make this more specific. You know, one example of this is the tech backlash that we're seeing against Silicon Valley right now, right? So 10 years ago, um, everybody in the, in the engineering and the tech world said social media is going to be great because information is always good. More information is always better. Connection is always good. More connection is always better. We're going to become liberated. We're going to become citizens of the world. Everybody's going to become really friendly. And also, you know, disinformation, problems that are based on, on people disagreeing about facts, those are gonna go away because it's gonna be really, really easy to access facts now. Well, <laughs> look around at what's happening now, right? These, these assumptions turned out to not be wrong, but laughably wrong um, and dangerously wrong as well. And there's been a, a parallel shift in the, the coverage that you get from journalism, um, shifting a little bit from liberal arts into journalism here, right? But um, we've gone from a kind of unthinking and reflexive uh, utopianism, both about tech and about human nature, to a, a kind of unthinking and equal dystopianism about tech and about human nature. And I think what you, what you get is 
um, a world of scientists and engineers, and you see the same thing happening in, in like CRISPR and genetic engineering. And there are parallel things that, that happen that have been happening during COVID as well, which I can get into. But you see them finally uh, waking up to like what is, what is often the first step of liberal arts inquiry, which is what if things turn out bad or what if they turn out differently than we thought? Uh, Farhad Manju, who is a, uh, an opinion columnist for the New York Times and kind of a, fa a famous uh, Pollyanna on tech stuff, just a year or two wrote this column that said, what if tech might be bad sometimes? Digital tech has bad effects. And you see when they're, when they're reaching this, uh, this kind of revelation, you see them one step away from the revelation of all of these things that we thought were uh, just these, these neutral tools and these neutral statements that we were making about technology were actually reflecting these very um, deep-seated assumptions about human nature. And what we were really wrong about was not technology per se, it was, it was human nature and how technology relates to human nature. And so you see, I think a lot of uh, the tech world kind of reiterating some of the very, very basic uh, entry point questions to philosophical reflection about human nature and even to uh, literary reflection of human nature. And I think a lot of what our job is, is to point out to them, like you've been, you've been forced into doing this thing that you said was pointless all along. And if you're, if you're now forced by circumstances to do it, probably better to do it well and intelligently than in a kind of knee-jerk and unreflective, uh, unreflective sort of way. Yeah, yeah. And maybe to, to keep going with that, uh, the, the particular theme of um, sort of tech optimism and now um, the kind of, I, I think it's in your most recent issues that there's that essay on the new net, del net delusion. Uh, how even, even the backlash has some of these same um, uncritical shortcomings um you know i thought i thought uh well it, you just wrote this essay with john uh in, in the national affairs and i can link to it in the show notes but um on what it might take to help our sort of social media information ecosystem to to operate or maybe operate in a more healthy manner and i thought one of the key points you make in there is uh the fact that humans are fundamentally communal you know in any literary scholar or anybody who's read um, and, and discussed and thought about philosophy or theology knows this, um, that, that humans are deeply communal, that we, um, and, and a lot of social psychologists have made this point recently too, that, that we are desiring before we are thinking. Um, so what do you think um, journals such as the New Atlantis might do to help us be in community in a, in a healthy way. You know, we, we have a lot of critiques of sort of tribalism on one side and people think tribalism is bad and, and certainly it can be. Um, but being sort of uh, enlightenment, individualist, rational thinkers is also uh, inadequate. So I think, I think earlier you mentioned um, conceiving of the new Atlantis as a kind of home for academic outcasts or people on the margins. How, how do you foster a healthy community as a uh, magazine of ideas? Yeah, it's a challenging and an, and an interesting question. And one that I, I don't know if we've always thought deliberately about. I mean, it, an immediate answer to this is, you know, the, the immediate community of the New Atlantis is the people who are actually 
directly engaged in the project, right? The writers, the editors and so forth. We at one point had an internship program um, that was around for a long time. Um, all of our current staff members began, began as enter, uh, interns. And so there, there's a real mentorship element to what we do. Uh, my predecessor, Adam Kuyper, I, I think was better at this and more naturally dedicated to it than I am. Uh, he, would, he would give of himself in really remarkable ways to, uh, to tutoring other people in whom he saw potential to both to draw out that potential and to, to kind of challenge them and to teach them how to, uh, how to think and work in the new Atlantis model. I benefited from this personally uh, enormously. Uh, my colleagues Samuel and Brendan have as well. Um, but he also, he paid this forward to a lot of people who went through our internship program or who have written for us who, um, you know, didn't go on to become staff members or didn't go on to become regular writers. Um, but I think of us as trying to pass, <clears throat> as trying to pass that same mentorship along in a certain way to our, our readers. <clears throat> Excuse me. So part of what uh, providing a refuge is, is uh, I, I think simply articulating uh, intuitions and insights that a lot of other people have probably had at some point, but felt uh, unable to bring to the surface themselves or felt like they didn't have the right space uh, to be able to ask in a legitimate way, right? So this, this goes back to the answer I gave to the last question. I think so many of the questions that we're really deeply debating now as a culture uh, that, that seem to be questions about science and technology that you'll find under the science section in your newspaper or under the tech question. These are really deferred questions that are about human nature. They're about philosophy. They're about politics and um, the interface between politics uh, and science. And I think that the, the dominant ways that we have about of talking about science don't allow us to articulate the, the real sort of fundamental questions that are at stake there, right? I talk a lot about GMOs, right? There's, there's, if you, if you read um, popular science discourse on genetically modified foods, you'll sort of see two positions and they're both arguing about whether GMOs are safe, right? And so there's all of this fight and there's this narrative that there is one body of science that shows GMO to, GMOs to be safe, uh, another that picks holes in that. And each side is kind of calling each other anti-science for disregarding the science on this. I think part of what we, part of what we offer to our readers is a way of, or, you know, you can tell in the way that I just framed this that I, I don't think that framing GMOs as a fundamentally scientific question is the right way to think about it. GMOs are a hot button and a difficult issue because they raise these much more profound questions about our relationship with nature, the relationship of, of agriculture to community, the relationship of distant centralized regulatory bodies to, to have influence over our way of life and over what we put into our bodies and so forth. And so I think we, we first of all, provide community by just having a place where you can point that out, right? And say that the right questions are not being asked about this. Um, and simply having a place where you are, are encouraged and able and allowed to ask the sort of deeper questions that aren't being asked and to not feel like if you're a dissident on this question, it's because you're anti-science or troglodyte or something like that. I think there's something very powerful in that. Um, at the same time, the community that we are is, is mostly a sort of virtual one in multiple senses, right? The people who are part of our community, our readers are scattered across the country. And something I, I continually think about is the way to make, is ways to make that community more literal, right? To be able to have actual gatherings uh, of our readers and supporters in, in the way that, you know, first things and other 
uh, other publications do. That is something I, I think about and would like to do differently. Um, and to, to continue having interns, that's, that's something we're hoping to, uh, to bring back in the future. Yeah, maybe once uh, the pandemic uh, is in the, yeah. it'll be more possible. Still challenging right now. Yeah, but I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think um, there is great value in reading somebody uh, articulate sort of incoherent thoughts or questions that you have and, and you can think, oh, I'm not the only one, right? And that, that can be comforting and reassuring. But there's also something about um, engaging people in an ongoing conversation that is right. replaceable. And, and hence why you talked about, I guess, the, the internship and the, the sort of relationships that you can cultivate as between editors and writers in ways that you really can't do um, with most readers. Um, you're limited yeah, to, you can't have those those formative mentor relationships. Exactly. I'm, I'm trying to remember who said this. I think it's been said in many times in many different ways as the, uh, the Christmas song goes. But um, there is something communal just in the experience of reading something that that speaks to you and, and hearing something in yourself be given voice and be given the space to kind of breathe and to, to exist. Um, on its own, right? To be given a, a local habitation and a name. And I, I've had this experience. I mean, this is what drew me to the journal. I actually I vividly remember sitting on a plane uh, on my way to this internship and reading one of Yuval Levin's essays. Um, he did he did several sort of essays reflecting on, on science and modernity and science's relationship to the left and to the right. And just thinking, where has this been all my life? You know, all of my adult life, I've been looking for this kind of of reflection and engagement uh, and just this way of thinking about and asking that. And there was something very powerful simply in that experience of knowing that I was not alone in, in, in um, wanting to have these questions asked and wanting to be, uh, to be able to engage with them in this way. Uh, but then I also got to benefit from actually, you know, getting to meet, meet with you all and having some, some mentorship from him and, um, and from Adam. Um, and that's, yeah, I think I think I, I hear that response from a lot of uh, of our readers uh, and of our supporters, right? Is that they 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 had a similar response reading us of not knowing that they had been looking for this thing and then discovering it and having this sense of um, of homecoming a little bit, you know, at the risk of overstating it. Um, and my feeling is that there is a great desire for that elsewhere in the culture. Um, I've noticed a lot more people having that kind of response to our work in the last few years. Uh, you know, 10 years ago or so, I think a lot of what we had to do was to convince people there might be some bad things occasionally about science and technology that need to be reflected on. Now the whole culture is awash in that. And I think our, our task is a different one, which is to try to form that in a fruitful direction um, and not have it just be, uh, you know, as reflexively skeptical as it was before, reflexively credulous. And so we've seen a lot of our stuff on this. Um, I'm thinking of Mike Sakasis's piece on the tech backlash. There were a bunch of big mainstream tech journalists who, in, you know, in a way, his his essay was kind of critiquing their frame for for talking about uh, the tech backlash. I saw a lot of them tweeting and talking about this article when it came out as a kind of that sort of shock of revelation of like, where has this uh, this way of articulating this problem and this way of thinking about this been? And so I see, I see that as our big task right now is to bring that experience to more people and then to figure out how to cohere that into a, a more literal community where there's actual interchange. Yeah, uh, Mike's essay was, uh, was quite good, I thought. 
it's terrific uh, yeah as most of his work is yeah yes um well maybe you, you've already been talking about this but i guess do you have anything else to say about the sort of educational mission of the new atlantis how, how you know to, to be an educational institution uh you know as a professor i expect my students to walk into the classroom knowing certain things so they don't have to start with square one we can be have a sort of common framework but of course i also have a an agenda for the semester or or their time at uh, an institution so I, I guess what kind of education or kind of things do you expect uh your readers already to know and to have read um and maybe you've, you've talked about you know it's, a, it's maybe a lower threshold than the typical academic journal um but what particular ways do you hope that uh, the new Atlantis continues to form and educate readers. It seems like in some ways it's a posture, a, a posture that's not, um, you know, a tech optimist or a tech uh, skeptic, but one who tries to, to sort of weigh these questions uh, on a human, on a human standard. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I don't really think there is any strict precondition. Um, I know that there's a certain type of education that especially attracts people to our work. Uh, and, you know, I think of, I think of St. John's and the University of Chicago and to some extent Hillsdale is sort of like the big three feeders for TNA readership and TNA writers. The, those schools really train people who, who are kind of ready to think and the right in our, in our mold, but they're a minority nonetheless. Um, there, we really have people who come from so many different backgrounds. And I think that's one of the strengths of, of what we do. Uh, we have a lot of people who write for us who are, you know, simply have scientific training and have kind of come to philosophical and literary reflection on their own who are autodidacts in a way. Uh, some of our best philosophical writing on philosophy of mind comes from uh, a guy named Ray Tallis, who's a trained neuroscientist. And he's kind of off doing his own sort of philosophical uh, reflection on mind, contrary to uh, Daniel Dennett and a lot of the, the reductive philosophers out there. Um, we also have people who come from, you know, from a philosophy background who are able to bring uh, that, that particular uh, sort of reflection to bear. But I, I really think of the distinctive thing as a kind of intellectual curiousness um, and, a, and a, it's sort of like an intellectual curiousness and moral hunger that the people who have that are, are, I think, especially likely to have gone through liberal arts training um, or maybe scientific training of a certain sort. But that's only that's mostly only a filter mechanism for finding those people and then for also forming and cultivating them. I think that that quality is itself distinctive of and independent from that. And there are lots and lots of people who, who read us and who are involved in what we do who haven't had that kind of training at all or who have kind of those impulses have brought them to their own sort of independence uh, reflection. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't, I wouldn't want to sort of uh, frame the journal or most institutions as being exclusive, even while uh, I think it's helpful to kind of sketch uh, which people are tend to be drawn uh, to these conversations. Yeah, but I, I think I didn't answer the second part of your question, which was, you know, how do we seek to form people? Yeah, it's a that's a tough question. I mean, it, it my my initial answer is just to to offer a kind of 
self-referential self answer, right? Which is we have this understanding of what is the TNA way of looking at things. And that is what we are kind of trying to train people in. And it, it involves a sort of a quizzical mix of, um, I think, wonder and awe about science and technology as these modes of discovering the nature of the world that we are in and as these ways of creating new possibility, right? So we're, a lot of us at TNA are big uh, space geeks because we see it as this, see space travel uh, as this wonderful expression of human potential. Um, and I think that that distinguishes us from a lot of other sort of tech critics. Um, but we, we also, I think, have a sense of, a somewhat tragic sensibility, right? We're, uh, we're the type of people who enjoy reading Greek mythology and other stories, you know, in Frankenstein, where man's hubris leads to his downfall. We're very uh, keenly attuned uh, to that kind of tragic condition that comes out of our own, of our own nature. Uh, so I don't know, I guess there's, there's, there's always this kind of question of intellectual life of what is its, what is its purpose and what is its aim? You know, is it just the kind of, deep in itself. Um, but I, I do think that there is a kind of a, a moral trajectory that we try to, to aim at uh, of, of steering people away from kind of anti-human impulses uh, and toward a, a more humanistic understanding of what the purpose of the scientific enterprise should be. Yeah, and maybe, um, you know, my next question maybe gets at some of these challenges because it tends to be, I think that, um, platforms or voices which are more clearly on one side or the other. Uh, they're easier to categorize, they're easier to, to draw attention. You know, people who are just rah-rah, uh, you know, let's right. be an Elon Musk and, and go conquer the stars, or people who are just um, sort of Luddite in, in the pejorative sense. Um, how, how do you sort of publish these kinds of long thoughtful essays and promote this sort of humanistic reflection while keeping your organization solvent, while uh, attracting readers. And uh, I mean, I think, you know, in journalism, there's this tendency to just sort of reduce things to clickbait um, and, and feed people what they want to hear. Um, so they, they come to your site looking for that. So how do, how do you kind of push against those tendencies, publish things that are maybe more complex and nuanced, but also, um, I guess, invite readers to sort of step into that into that more difficult space rather than just giving them sort of rather than appealing to their maybe baser appetites. Yeah. Well, um, I don't think we've entirely figured, figured that out. The challenges that, that other journalistic endeavors have been faced with over the last five or 10 years of having to change and update their model. We face those same things too. And I think we're still in the midst of figuring them out. Um, there are, there are partial answers. And the first one is, is the sort of self-serving one of, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not in this for clickbait and we're not in this for kind of cynical appeals to what people want to hear. Um, there is not only the pressure for, for kind of clickbait, but in the, you know, in the funding world, if you wanted to pitch somebody, say a science publication that was going to offer a rubber stamp for why free markets are the solution to everything and the highest thing that have ever been created by a man, you could get scads of money for that. Or right now, if I wanted to start an organization that was basically just all about why Anthony Fauci needs to be fired and he's um, this totally corrupt, cynical figure who's 
gonna gonna come into your bed at night and force you to wear a mask or something like that. I think there would be a lot of uh, a lot of money in that. And so the first answer simply were, you know, we're we're high-minded purists who are not interested in doing that. But the second one is there really is a market for the kind of work that we do and the kind of work that you're discussing, right? We we ourselves are not the only ones who are frustrated um, with the the kind of shallow partisanship that you get in the rest of the discourse. Um, it, with the, you know, I, I often think about us as, as kind of trying to provide alternatives to, uh, this is an academic audience, so degraded and irresolvable dialectics, right? There's there's the left-right partisan tribalectic, tri tribal dialectic. There's also the uh, kind of let's defer to science and, and the experts dialectic versus they're all corrupt and let's throw them out. Um, I think of us as trying to provide alternatives to these things. And that, that sort of shock of recognition thing that I mentioned earlier, people respond to us uh, when, they, when they find this. Um, and I, I think that people recognize something that is, uh, is resisting the easy pulls of just trying to score points, but is also not trying to score points by doing a both sides thing or just standing above it all, right? But it's but trying to articulate a real point of view. Um, I think of this as a big problem with a lot of the journalistic world is that the sort of news versus opinion divide problematically bifurcates the, the media world into an ostensible news side that is just rife with kind of ideological agenda that is hidden and unacknowledged. And then an opinion side that uh, is not especially interested in facts and is not deeply formed by that. I think of the alternative as being people who are, are very openly and directly offering a point of view, trying to articulate that, trying to make a case for how things should be. Uh, we're not the only people who are doing that. Uh, obviously, lots of outlets do that. I think. And, and, you know, in the mainstream journalistic world, the Atlantic uh, does that very well with their science and tech reporting. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there is a hunger for that. And I think our, our big task, I don't think we actually have to do a lot of work to persuade people to like what we're producing. Our work is just in helping people find and discover, and discover it. And, and to some extent, um, I think one of our challenges right now is to figure out how to solve the problem that a lot of other media enterprises have been working on for the last five years, which is, yes, we want to continue producing the long form content and that is the core of what we're doing. But a lot of people also want to be listening to stuff on audio. They want to be hearing about your ideas in the form of uh, an interview or a podcast. They want to do something that doesn't require sitting down and, and kind of hyper concentrating. I'm, I'm the same way as everybody else. There's way more long form stuff that I would like to be reading than I actually am reading. And sometimes it's relief to have, a relief to have a kind of more digestible podcast version of that or a newsletter or something. And so that's something we're thinking about a lot and really want to, we're, we're trying to get into that soon. Yeah. And I guess as you are articulating the challenges to um, sort of distill um, the, the wisdom that you glean from long, slow, careful thinking um, for people who, yeah, are busy and, and don't have time to, to sit down and read a, you know, a 10,000 word essay um, without sort of reducing or simplifying um, that um, in a way that just sort of warps the, the complexity of the issues. Um, but yeah, I, I, hope, I hope you continue to navigate those challenges well. You, you've already begun, I think, answering my next question, which is about um, 
about these partisan divides and this partisan climate that we're in. Um, and, and I appreciate what, did you, what you said about not wanting to just sort of take the easy route, which is a kind of both sidesism. You know, there's merit on both sides and, and here's what the experts get right and here's what the populists get, get right or, or here's what, um, you know, the left sees and here's what the right sees. Um, and I, maybe this would be a time that you could talk about your, your um, COVID reporting. Cause I think, yeah, maybe you and the Atlantic are the, are the, the um, outlets that come to mind in terms of kind of cutting through some of the um, simplistic discourse on, on various partisan sides and, and thinking, yeah, how, how do we actually measure what's going on and then think about what kinds of appropriate risks do we have to take and what are the real options? It seems like so, so often you see facts just selectively chosen for a preordained uh, policy conclusion rather than actually weighed and the complexity actually acknowledged. Yeah, this is, this is a really big question and it's one I've personally been working on for many years and uh, I, could, I could talk about at some length. Um, I'll, I'll offer you my little spiel on what I see as the kind of the, the big problem with science discourse in our country um, and then how the New Atlantis responds to that. And, and COVID is a really uh, robust example of this. There is a, there's a very clear problem with the status uh, of experts in our, of our culture uh, and the status of scientific evidence and scientific knowledge. Uh, there is this idea that, first of all, that science is this kind of unitary body, right? You hear, look, well, we're going to follow what the science says. The experts are saying this. The science is saying that. Um, this, this doesn't hold up to even the faintest bit of scrutiny about the way science actually works. Science is a series of different disciplines that have uh, often competing and conflicting ways of asking questions, um, different kinds of things that they're concerned with. Um, I think something that is that is not appreciated uh, either by the defenders or the critics of expertise is that the the divide between uh, an epistemological way of looking at the world, a way of kind of inquiring about the the nature of the world we live in, and a way of thinking about what ought to happen, these things really can't be as neatly separated as people want them to be. Right there, I think there are people who want to look at science and say. Um, Science is just about telling us how things are and it's up to other parts of life to tell us how things should be, right? Science is about is, other areas are about ought. That's, it's not a realistic way to think about the way that the human mind works or about the way that, you know, paradigms, if you wanna use a highfalutin word, work, right? So uh, Daniel Sarowitz is one of my favorite thinkers on this. Um, he talks about this example from uh, the 1980s, where there was this, uh, there was this controversy over whether sonar testing by the Navy uh, was causing whales to beach because it was destroying their eardrums. So there was a, a national science organization that commissioned a study on this and found no evidence that the uh, that the sonar testing was causing these whales to beach. Um, and so there were these marine biologists or climate scientists who said that the sonar testing should continue. I think that the testing was being used to try to measure temperatures in the ocean, right? So there was one body of scientists who was using this testing and wanted it to continue. And when there was no evidence that the testing was causing the whales to beach, they said it should continue. 
And then there was another body of scientists, the marine biologists who were concerned with the health of the whales. And the study also found no evidence that the uh, sonar was not causing the whales to beach, right? So basically the study was inconclusive. And each, each of these two sides said, uh, science has vindicated my position on this, right? So that's a, that's a kind of basic question of when science doesn't resolve a question on its own terms, what are we to do? And science isn't capable of answering that. But what Sarowitz points out is that you have different scientific disciplines that are ask, each asking and responding to different sorts of questions, right? So again, when you think about a question like, should we, do, should we use genetically modified foods or not? Or are genetically modified foods safe? There is no one scientific answer to that question. You can have different scientific disciplines that approach this question in completely different ways, right? You can have um, one that is thinking about the kind of holistic nature of how organisms relate to overall ecosystems. You have scientific disciplines that are very interested and worried about um, uncertainty and unpredictability and the way that ecosystems can get out of flux. And then you can have um, other scientific disciplines, uh, molecular biology in particular, that is much more oriented towards controlling, studying and controlling the elements of life in order to gain technical insight that can be used for human benefit. And so these are, these are both scientific perspectives and they're gonna give you completely different answers on um, what the purpose of genetically modified foods is and what would constitute safe. So you can't appeal to science to answer even a question like that. Um, and so I think that we have this mistaken view that science can, can sort of tell us what to do on these things. Um, it's, it's on the one hand a view that science can, can tell us what to do about these very deep thorny political and moral questions. And on the other hand a view that it can tell us what to do about these things because it has no interest, because it is value free. Um, and I think what you get is you, you get this way of talking and thinking about science that is very, very deferential um, and says we need to just bow to what the scientists are doing. And because uh, a lot of people recognize and realize the problems with that, they respond to it by just wanting to say, nah, we're gonna just do, we're gonna not do what the scientists are telling us. They're, they're corrupt and they're trying to get one over on us. Um, and I think it leads to this sort of unfruitful dynamic that is, is um, it's almost childlike in a way, right? It's, it's almost like the relationship between a parent and a teenager who goes back and forth between um, very much needing the advice of the parent uh, and needing their counsel and support, and then also feeling like they're being controlled and they're wanting to kind of act out and rebel. Um, and I think you see that dynamic playing out a lot in uh, during the pandemic, right? You can see both of these sides fairly clearly on articulation of a, we need to just bow and do whatever they're saying. And no, we need to just kind of rebel and stick it to them. And it suggests that we don't have a, a kind of adult way of thinking about science is offering, scientific disciplines is offering their own sort of perspectives on how things are, how things are and how things should be. And that that is a perspective that um, has its own value and has its own purpose, uh, but that ha has to be balanced against, against um, lots of other ways of seeing things and lots of other questions that need to be asked uh, from other directions. I'm not sure if this is answering your question or not. Yeah, I think so. Um, in particular, you know, you, you can see how these sort of dynamics about science and how we view science either as a neutral authority or as a, a genie that can give us answers to whatever question we want, how those maybe simplistic views of science then get um, caught up in the partisan political climate where 
people turn to science to authorize whatever policy outcomes they already want, <clears throat> rather than, as you're advocating, trying to wrestle with different kinds of scientific disciplines, um, wrestle with uncertainty and ambiguity. And um, I think you said this in an earlier answer, but trying to, to, to muster uh, you know, facts as best we can understand them uh, in, in making a, a, an unapologetic argument and being open about, you know, this is my, my stance, but, but in doing that in a, in a more humble, nuanced manner than, than just here, I'm going to cite three scientific studies to prove that free markets are the only solution to, you know, human flourishing or whatever the case may be. Right. The, the pandemic is really rich with examples of this. Yeah. Um, my colleague, Brendan, has this wonderful phrase. We published this piece in our last issue called Science is Scorekeeping. And his point is that the, when we talk about science during the pandemic, a lot of what we're doing is trying to show that science validates our point of view and that it shows that the other side is wrong and is a bunch of, uh, of crooks and jerks and so forth. And his point is, you know, not only is this a, a tiresome sort of thing to do, it, it's really limiting of the way that we think, of the way that we engage with what science is, right? Um, so on the, on the tribal question, one of the weird features of the pandemic that really hasn't been commented on enough is right now you have it set that, you know, the left is basically the alarmist side on COVID and the right is the, um, it's fine or tough it outside on COVID. That was completely flipped during January and February. Uh, in January and February, it, it actually followed uh, the dynamics of what it's been in past outbreaks, including during Ebola, right, where you had um, a lot of the right who were the ones who were more, you know, more concerned with this looming threat. Um, I think you had a lot of sort of pseudonymous internet accounts who were worried about this, people who worry about, you know, preppers, end of day type people who were, were worried about this seeming looming existential threat. And I was one of them. I was ringing the bell on this back in January. Um, and then you had, um, you know, sort of the, the bien pensant centrists, uh, uh, center and center left saying, this is just the right getting hysterical. You had some of them pulling out the evolutionary psychology stuff. This is actually, you know, basically if you're worried about a virus coming from China, it's probably because you're racist against the Chinese. This is gonna be something where stigma against the virus, stigma against people who have the virus or against people from China is gonna be a bigger problem than the, than the disease itself. You heard this from the head of the WHO. Um, you know, we should be more worried about an infodemic, which is to say the epidemic of disinformation than we should about the virus itself. All of this just kind of mind-bendingly uh, condescending stuff that characterized the first couple of months. And in fact, really significantly impacted the way that, that um, the response was actually handled. I think that you had, this was the sort of consensus view of like the Farhad Manju, Cass Sunstein, op-ed writer people was to basically put this in the category of this is what irrational anti-science people think is that this is gonna be a problem. And it rationalized not taking it seriously among the sort of elite class, um, including in, in New York City where you had uh, de Blasio and a lot of his staff crucially delaying their response on the grounds that this was racist or it was going to, to artificially gen up public fear in ways that we now know probably cost thousands or tens of thousands of lives because of the delay in their reaction. That, that all flipped in this course of two or three weeks in March. And I don't know that I have a solid narrative on how that happened, but it suddenly became that 
the left were the ones who were super worried about COVID and the right got on board with uh, saying it's just like the flu, it's not a big deal. And I think that, that what happened was as soon as it became clear that the only options on the table for dealing with this were social restrictions, um, social distancing, lockdowns, masks, all the rest, I guess that, that you know, um, that set off the, the concern among the right for, for sort of sensing social control on the left and attempts to, to police the way we live and how we think. And basically, I think COVID turned into a referendum on social control, on controlling what other people think and, and how other people behave. Um, the significant thing about this is like, none of this is really about, to the extent that anything is about science, none of this is really about science, uh, it, you know, really in either direction. I, I do think that conservatives have been worse about this. I don't want to do a sort of a, a total false equation here. Um, but there has been a lot of this on both sides of just sort of marshalling science to show actually it's really bad or actually it's not bad. Um, the, the question of masks is a really interesting example of this. Back in January and February, the elite consensus was masks don't work. There's no evidence that they work. If you use them, it's probably because you're hysterical and it may make things worse by fomenting panic. And then it flipped around in the span of a few weeks and suddenly it was now the consensus is masks work great. Everybody needs to use them. They're super effective. Well, I don't think the science on this actually changed at all. There really hasn't been much new research on masks this year. Uh, I think that there is good fragmentary evidence available that masks work. Uh, I think it's a, a far less intrusive intervention than shutting your economy down and therefore is worth just doing in the hopes that it might do something. Um, but there, both, both sides of this debate essentially don't have a way of talking about this as other than science says it's absolutely one way or another, right? We don't have a discourse where we're, we're even able to say we're not totally sure, but this just seems like a, a good thing to do pragmatically and prudentially. And the crucial thing about this is that there are this, this whole other suite of options on the table that completely get crowded out by this way of talking about science, right? So here's one question that's not talked about. The difference between cloth masks and N95 masks, right? Cloth masks are what most people are wearing. It's your upper bandana around your face. I think there's actually pretty good reason to be skeptical of how well those things work. They don't they don't seal on your face. They don't filter. COVID is an airborne disease. They probably work a little bit. I'm skeptical that they work a lot. I think that they're worth doing. But you can either respond to that by saying, Anthony Fauci is trying to pull one over on you by saying that masks don't work. Or you can respond to that skepticism by saying, let's do this for now. And in the meantime, let's put together a crash program to mask manufacture N95 masks. So one of the things that I've kept saying is, one, we're talking about science as as a way of scorekeeping, as a way of adjudicating who's right and wrong, and not as an actual tool that you can actually use to change the state of affairs and to expand your options on the table, right? If you think that the, that the fight between lockdowns and anti-lockdowns is a terrible one, that it's sort of hard to adopt either position, which is what I think. If you think that the mask versus anti-mask argument is a kind of interminable one, you can create other options. Somebody in leadership can decide let's end this debate by mass manufacturing N95s and sending them to everyone, which we do know N95s work really well, much better than cloth masks. Um, and it's the same thing with, with lockdowns, right? You don't wanna have to argue about lockdowns versus no lockdowns. Create uh, a rapid mass testing regime uh, and, 
and all of the kind of tracing and, and isolation infrastructure to go around with it. You can actually, if, for much of TNA's history, one of the themes we've tried to hammer on is a lot of problems can't be engineered out of. A lot of these are kind of deep moral problems that we have to figure out. This is one of these cases where we actually can engineer our way out of this problem, right? And so we're, we're sort of in this culture where we are beset by, by technocratic language that, that actually narrows our imagination and prevents technocracy from doing the fruitful and productive things that you would want it to do when you really need it to come into gear like this. Uh, I've, I've been rambling on for a while. And I'm well, <laughs> I, think your, I think your answer exemplifies um, an answer to the question I asked about, you know, what are the values of, of using science to prod us to think in more creative, imaginative directions and not, not to get sort of locked into our sort of ideological um, stances and then, and then use science only to support us but to sort of take a step back and, and try to, to approach science in a humanistic, creative way. And I think, you know, what you just said exemplifies the benefits that could come from doing that. And, and I would just point people to, to, to further reading in the New Atlantis um, for, more, for more examples along these lines. Because I think it is the kind of thing that's hard to articulate in the abstract um, and becomes more apparent when you start seeing how it can play out in particular circumstances, because it, it changes, right? It's not like... The answer is always, I mean, you just said, oftentimes the answer is, well, we can't engineer our way out of this problem. Uh, here, here's a, a problem that involves technology for which there is no techno technocratic solution. Uh, maybe Facebook is, is an example in that regard. But uh, it, it, in COVID situation, maybe there are uh, engineering solutions that, that um, can, can make a real difference here. So I think um, Part of the challenge maybe in articulating this uh, in a sort of bullet point fashion is that it's not, uh, it's not always the same outcome. It's, it's, it's particularized and it's differentiated depending on the circumstances. Yeah, so here's another useful example of this. Um, well, I'll preface this by saying that I think that the Trump administration's response to COVID was abysmal overall. But there was a this sort of parallel universe not too far off from ours where you could imagine a Trump White House that was able to respond to, to COVID in a way that you might not have expected another administration to, right? And that is one that marries the best elements of technocracy and populism rather than setting these things in, up, in opposition. Um, so for example, the hydroxychloroquine question, I thought that the way that this question was debated by the mainstream press and by our by our culture broadly, it was a, a great example of this problem that I'm talking about because everybody was arguing about, is there or is there not enough evidence to say that hydroxychloroquine can help COVID patients? Well, there was a little evidence, but not a lot. And, and of course, you know, end of discussion, why did we need to discuss it more than that? Everybody should have been on the same page of, it might help, there's some promising evidence, we need to study it a lot more and as quickly as possible to find out if it does help, let's put some money into that. Why could we not get on board with that as a culture? Well, because the way that we think about science and about scientific questions is it's all about having this, this kind of certainty and about having the proper warrant from science to say what you're saying, right? So if, if Trump comes out and overstates the certainty about the hydroxychloroquine evidence and says it's gonna be a miracle cure, I thought by the way that this, is, this was a rare exception where what he was saying was actually reasonably well calibrated to the state of knowledge that we had. He said it could be a miracle cure. 
given the given the state of knowledge we had at the time, that was a possibility, and it was one worth taking seriously. I don't think it has turned out to be, but it was all made into this referendum on is Trump being anti-science or not, right? And the thing that wasn't discussed was, is this enough of a uh, of a possibility? Is this promising enough that we should invest in this along with a bunch of other stuff that seems promising and try to play it out, right? So. I don't know if this is the best metaphor, but imagine it's it's 1960 and the political culture is starting to debate, like, could we or could we not go to the moon? Imagine if we turn this into a referendum on does science say we can or cannot go to the moon, given the technical capabilities we have? I mean, the answer was we we had good reason to think we might be able to. We weren't going to know whether we actually could until we actually tried to do it. That's the only way that you answer that question. And the same thing infects, uh, infects so much else of the culture, right? So there was there was a kind of shadow of a Trumpian way of thinking about, um, I'll say of a populist way of thinking about the possibilities uh, of American industry and of, of harnessing um, the scientific enterprise for these goals, right? The idea behind Operation Warp Speed, I think was the right one, but you can see the limits of the dynamic we have in that you know, essentially the stuff was all done very, very incompetently. And a lot of it, there, there are sort of two Trumps here, right? There's the one who says, American greatness, we're gonna, we're gonna engineer our way out of this and we're gonna fix this and everything's gonna be great. I would have liked to have seen more of that. And I, I think that he and the, the movement that he stood for has the, the barest and most degraded versions of a way of articulating that that are still better than the, the total lack of it that exists in the rest of the culture. But it has become so preoccupied with just being about opposing technocrats and wanting to stick it to the elites and hating Fauci and owning the libs. Um, I, I try to stay out of this stuff in, in my position, but I'm getting into it a little bit here. There's a, there's a potential here, and I think that it is a potential that exists more on the conservative side than it does on the liberal side or the progressive side. There's a potential that is being wasted for understanding how to harmonize these two elements of our culture, the, the kind of technocratic impulse and the, and the populist impulse. There's a way of trying to put these things back together and put them in greater harmony that is being squandered um, by merely wanting to oppose the, the dominant way of doing things. Yeah, and maybe maybe uh, the New Atlantis and others, the, the best opportunity to, to move forward here is to try to articulate that potential in ways that um, uh, you know, continue to stand against, I guess, the simplistic partisan um, oppositions that unfortunately continue to to drive our political discourse forward. Yeah, and I, I it is. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, well, just go ahead. Yeah, it's a difficult it's a difficult problem because there is not there isn't an easy answer to it. I think the the things that we're providing alternatives to are easier. It's easier to just say, well, just follow the science or just oppose the science and just throw the technocrats out. Providing the alternative, the alternative to that is, is hard. It requires creative thinking about different kinds of political structures, different ways of, uh, of engaging um, different interest groups and different points of view in the culture and getting them to be, to be able to talk to each other and come to different solutions to the problems that are in front of us. Um, it's it's a, a challenging, but I think also an, an open and a robust project for which there is a lot of work uh, that can and needs to be done. And it's, it is what I understand our purpose to be right now. Yeah, well said. 
we've gone on long and so we should wrap this up, but I want to ask sure. you one more question that is probably outside of your wheelhouse. Um, but maybe that will make, make your uh, answer uh, more interesting. Uh, what's the future of higher education? Uh, is there a future for educational institutions that form students in the liberal arts uh, while also pursuing you know, rigorous scientific uh, inquiry? Can, can those things be held together? I wish I had the answer to that. <laughs> um, I don't know what the future is. I can say what I, what I think it, it might be or what could help it. Um, maybe this is an easy answer as, a, as an outsider, but um, you know, winding the clocks back two or 300 years to the point where we understood uh, scientific inquiry to be continuous with the liberal arts, not the same thing as it, not even necessarily subservient to it as it, as it was two or 300 years ago. I don't think that's something we need to bring back, but of, of understanding it to be continuous. Um, it's, it's actually not that hard to recognize right now, right? A lot of um, you know, computer science, which is the dominant technical force of our, of our civilization for the last 30 or 40 years, it basically began as a kind of thought experiment in philosophy departments uh, and to some extent mathematics departments. I mean, it, it really was a product uh, of kind of pure philosophical inquiry. Um, and the modern scientific, scientific project itself to some extent was, that story can be overtold, but Francis Bacon himself considered the, found, you know, the founding father of modern science. He was not really a scientist. He was a, a thinker about uh, what science is and how to make it uh, less navel-gazy and, and more practical. Um, my, you know, my own experience, like I mentioned, I, I have degrees in English and computer science. And so I had my, my feet in both of these uh, worlds in academia. Uh, I don't think they talk to each other. I think they have um, some, 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 some sense of alienation and to some extent contempt for each other. And I think some of that needs to be answered by just understanding that the, the aims that they're after are actually very very similar ones. The scientists that I knew were very, very curious, um, reflective and kind of uh, witty people. And um, I, I think that they, they can and should be brought to understand that the liberal arts has a great deal to offer there, um, that it has a lot to offer them about understanding their own work and their, their purpose and their place in the world and what science means to them uh, in, in their lives. Uh, and I think a lot of that work has to follow the liberal arts to be able to, to offer that articulation because I think it's very hard to find that um, in, in modern universities and especially in you know, big research universities like the one that I attended. So that's, that's what I would like to see happen. Uh, I don't know exactly how to make that happen. I don't have a deep understanding of the institutional problems that prevent that from happening, but I do think that the hunger and the desire for that is there. I think that it's, it's very clear that students today need universities to provide some sense of moral purpose of understanding of what the, the purpose of academic life is, that it needs to be something beyond uh, job training or technical training. Uh, I think it's, it's very clear that that hunger is there and it's there um, not just in the most uh, you know, left-wing universities or the, the liberal arts universities that already understand this. I think it's, it's everywhere. Uh, and I, I would hope that there is some uh, some potential to be had there by, by trying to tap that and to understand that that, that purpose can, uh, can exist uh, in intellectual inquiry if, if a better articulation for that is offered. 
Yeah, I think that's a compelling vision. And uh, many of us are, are uh, you know, trying to figure out how, how to work out aspects of that at various institutions. But I think, I think you're right that um, there is a hunger for that. And maybe the, the continued dysfunctions of our scientific discourse in, in popular culture will feed that hunger and, and motivate more people to, to look for alternative um, and rigorous uh, institutional homes uh, that, that could foster this kind of humane uh, scientific inquiry you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest hope here is human nature remains what it is. It is right. a constant, right? The kinds of the kinds of questions that the New Atlantis asks about what science is, what it says about our place in the world. These are not ones that we really have to persuade people to want to ask. They're ones that people are already asking. And our job, our first job, is just to to allow people to recognize that they are already asking these questions and that it is worth asking them directly instead of kind of passively and in the background. And I think that demand is always going to be there. And institutions that are incapable of, of answering that demand will eventually fail. And other ones that do answer it will be able to spring up in their place. We just hope that the, the pain of getting to that point is as minimal as possible. Amen to that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much uh, for this conversation and, and for your good work uh, with the New Atlantis. Thank you, Jeff. This has been great.